Hello and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have helped them become more real for us because we believe we can draw more power out of them that way and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so happy to have back with me uh, again. Uh, we, we should make him an honorary co-host. Uh, we have uh, Andrew Skinner with us. Uh, who has been on the program a number of times, and as, as you, anyone who's a regular part of this audience would know well by now, is a fantastic scholar and teacher, uh, former Ancient Scripture Department Chairman, Dean of Religious Education, Director of the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious uh, Scholarship. Let's see, it was, it was probably actually uh, Farms when you started, I would guess, and then uh, it became Maxwell. So anyway, welcome, Andy. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for reading that introduction just as my mother wrote it. <laughs> you didn't miss a word. <laughs> well, yeah, she she probably would have said even more stuff. I know that was the short <laughs> version. Uh, that was the really short version. But anyway, there's lots more, uh, lots more we could say. But that we've said it before. So, uh, but what else should we know about you? Uh, see, just you were an the, army brat, weren't you? No, no. But oh. but my father uh, spent uh, several years in the Marine Corps, so. I was raised with the idea of discipline as being uh, the most important thing. It probably explains a little bit about my personality, but nevertheless, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I try to stay true to the gospel. So that's probably the only thing to mention. Uh, wonderful. Well, good. So before you jump in, uh, let's just kind of give our audience a preview of what we're going to talk about. Uh, I only know this uh, from Andy but, uh, or Dr. Skinner. But uh, we're going to talk about uh, the influence of uh, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible and helping us understand this discourse, what the discourse is, the, the influence it has really on, on the history and understanding all sorts of things uh, and and the prophecies about the Savior's day and then the prophecies about the last days and and what we should do about those prophecies and and how we can find joy and comfort in those prophecies. So. That's what uh, Dr. Skinner will lead us through so ably, and so uh, let's jump in. Today we have, I think, one of the more interesting uh, topics, uh, although they're all interesting, but this one is, is really interesting, and I think one of the times we can be especially grateful to live uh, in a day of the Restoration, uh, but we're going to talk about what is often called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, people might know it as uh, the, the Discourse on the Signs of the Times, or... Um, Little Apocalypse is sometimes called, uh, Joseph Smith Matthew, uh, we, we can call it all sorts of things, uh, Matthew 20, 23 and 24, last part of 23 and 24, anything along those lines, whatever you'd like to call it, but a really fascinating and important topic, and uh, we're grateful that Dr. Skinner is willing to walk us through that. So uh, what would you like to talk about today? Well, I think maybe just a word or two of introduction, and then we can look at the text specifically, if there are any specific points that you would like us to cover. Uh, and I think uh, your audience is well aware that by this time, as we look at the New Testament, we're into the last week of the Savior's mortal life. And he presents uh, on that last week uh, some last day's instruction to his apostles, not all of them, apparently. Uh, Mark chapter 13 indicates that the disciples that Jesus was speaking specifically to were two sets of brothers, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John. Uh, undoubtedly, he will present this uh, material, this information to 
the other members of the Quorum of the Twelve, but for now it's the leading apostles, if you will, those who will be designated to lead the church. And uh, and it, as you said, it's the Olivet Discourse, uh, sometimes called the Little Apocalypse. The Big Apocalypse, of course, uh, is uh, the Book of Revelation written by by John, uh, and uh, it is. It is of such tremendous value to us uh, because it continues to instruct modern day disciples uh, in our modern age about things that we should be constantly looking at and being aware of. Uh, it's also called the uh, Olivet Prophecy by some Christians, by, uh, and that's, uh, that's basically what it is. But it's one of those sermons that helps us to see the continuity of concepts and the continuity of doctrines of the everlasting covenant across dispensations. Uh, what was applicable to the disciples in the Meridian dispensation is even more applicable to us in modern times because we're living in the age that Jesus described 2,000 years ago. And if I may make an editorial uh, comment, um, my my view is that it it is incredibly important for us to be aware of the content of of uh, the Olivet discourse Matthew chapter 24 so that we're not deceived so that we're not tossed about by every idea or wind of doctrine um also uh so that we're not fearful because there are some I guess what you'd call scary things that are described uh, in the Olivet Discourse, uh, but also so that we're prepared. If we're prepared, we won't fear, uh, so that we can see the hand of God uh, working in these latter days, and so that we can know that God's promises and God's prophecies have been, continue to be, and will yet be fulfilled. So as a as a, an introduction, I don't think you could hardly say more laudatory things about this particular section of scripture than it is really written for us. You know, we talk about the Book of Mormon being written for our day, and in a, as you know, truly it was, but this really is also for us. And, uh, and you get the sense that Jesus is putting things into the sermon that may not be all that critical for the ancient apostles to continually think about, but absolutely critical for modern day apostles, you and me and, and others to think about all of the time. So this, this really is, uh, as you say, not only interesting, but, but absolutely uh, critical, uh, talking about events before the end of the current age, the trials and tribulations that will occur um, before the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God when Jesus will come and reign personally upon this earth. And in fact, uh, maybe some of our viewers are now thinking, uh, well, Joseph Smith talked a lot about this subject. And in fact, he included the doctrinal points, the most important doctrinal points in the Articles of Faith. Uh, you Kerry is one of those that could not only quote all the articles of faith, but uh, give you the nuances as well. But uh, article of faith number 10, we believe 
And there are four points, I think, to uh, to Joseph Smith's summary that apply specifically to the Olivet Discourse. He starts out, we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the ten tribes. Point number one. Point number two, that Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon this, the American continent. Point three, that Christ will reign personally upon the earth. And point four, that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. And that's that. this is really um, Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, is, is really the foundation that we, we deserve for ourselves to to know about so that we can be prepared for these magnificent things that are to come. Um, just a couple of comments. Um, having spent some time with uh, with other Christians, not, not of our faith, but really good people, uh, they talk about the Olivet Discourse as one of five discourses or five sermons contained in the Gospel of Matthew, and in fact, yeah. it's the last of the five uh, that that uh, is found in Matthew. So, if you want to go to a to a succinct summary of the important uh, uh, sermons or discourses, you might try Matthew five. There are others that are given that I happen to think are absolutely critical and as important as this one. But but the five discourses in in Matthew, and the first one known by almost all the Christian world is the Sermon on the Mount chapters five through seven, the great missionary discourse, as even those not of our faith talk about it uh, in chapter 10. Uh, this is sometimes chapter 10, sometimes referred to as the little commission. Uh, we know that Jesus at the end of his ministry gave the great commission to go ye into all the world and so on. But chapter 10 is this little commission. When, uh, when he first sends out the apostles, right, to go on exactly. a mission without him. Exactly. Kind of tells them <laughs> what they need to be doing. It's uh, all all along, we kind of see these little mini MTC experiences that he gives to the apostles. Yeah. And, uh, and so this is one of those. The third sermon is the discourse on parables. And you... There are Matthew 13 and so on. Oh, yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, if I can just um, put in a little teaser for for those that are listening... Uh, Matthew 13 is, in fact, uh, a series of parables about the restoration of the gospel in the latter days. That's what that's the way Joseph Smith uh, looked at it. As we look at all of these parables in Matthew 13, they're really uh, about speaking about the restoration of the gospel. Uh, so that's a little plug for keep on reading uh, the parables in Matthew 13. The fourth and, and if I remember correctly, oh, I, I hope I remember correctly, but I think that I, I touched on that series of teachings by Joseph Smith when we did Matthew 13. I, I intended to. I think I did. Let's hope I did. So well, our audience I, I, should be able to go back and listen. I'm willing to bet that you did because it is such a unique, such an astounding way to interpret all of the parables in Matthew 13. Yeah. Uh, and then the fourth discourse is the discourse on apostolic leadership in chapter 18, this is where Jesus repeats what he said earlier in chapter 16, that whatever the apostles bind on earth will be bound in heaven. They are the key holders. And, uh, and this is know, right after the Mount of Transfiguration when keys have been bestowed, right? Exactly. 
and and you you don't need to go very far even to uh, literature that has been written by non-Latter-day Saints to understand how critical the apostles were viewed and have come to be viewed in the last 50 years. You, the, 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 it, it even touches on the, on the principles of canonicity. How were books selected to be part of our canon, uh, the, the rule or the guide, and its proximity to the original apostles? And then this last one, the Olivet uh, Discourse, chapters 24 and 25. Um, so why are we not looking at the King James Version of Matthew 24? Because uh, I think you alluded to the fact that we're going to be looking at Joseph Smith Matthew, which is uh, one of the sections of the Pearl of Great Price. And we come to appreciate the fact that the prophet Joseph devoted special attention to Matthew 24 precisely because the Savior is speaking about the times in which he lived and in which we live. And uh, apparently he uh, de devoted more time to the revision of, of uh, the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 24 than any of the other New Testament books. Uh, he he revised it at least three times to try to get this exactly right, and it and uh, Matthew twenty four the J JST of Matthew twenty four came uh, right after uh, his translation his inspired revision of the Old Testament was taking place, where the Lord says uh, you know stop and look at. A revelation that I gave to my apostles of old, and as it turns out, it's a section or a portion of what has now become Joseph Smith Matthew, but not kept in Joseph Smith Matthew. Rather, it's its own section of the Doctrine and Covenants, section forty-five of the Doctrine and Covenants. So we have in all fact, of there's, these. There's a, a real tie there because, as, as you said, he's tr he's translating the Old Testament. Then he gets the revelation that is section 45, and he says, I have more for this on you, but you're going to have to stop doing the Old Testament and start doing the New yeah. Testament to get this. And the mm -hmm. this is Matthew 24. So it really seems like Matthew 24 is the reason for stopping translating the Old Testament, starting the New Testament. Then he finishes the New Testament, goes back to the Old Testament. But yeah. the reception of this revelation to add on to section 45 seems to be the whole reason for that. Well, and, and uh, it, you know, he, he does stop and he starts translating. This is in 1831. He stops the Old Testament, starts translating the New Testament, and it isn't very long before he reaches Matthew uh, 24 and devotes yeah. so much time. Attention. And, and one of the cool things, uh, two really important things about, about his inspired revision and or inspired translation of, of Matthew 24 is that, number one, uh, he adds several new words uh, and, in fact, a whole uh, verse that is not in the original of Matthew yeah. 24. This is the last verse, verse 55. And then the, uh, the, the other thing is, is that um, he, he, not only, he, he not only adds new things, increases the text by 50%, the size of the, of the, of the chapter by 50%. I mean, we we're we are getting 
an edited version of Matthew 24, but edited by the Savior himself. Uh, as he also rearranges several of the verses well that's the point yeah yeah is that under under the dictation of the lord if you will he rearranges these verses so that they are much more chronological sequential than they are in uh in the king james version yeah and and he adds a verse that helps us understand when it's talking about his own day and when it's talking about the last days that that just revolutionizes your ability to understand this revelation and 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 this again the amazing thing is that we get now matthew 24 but edited by the savior himself through the prophet joseph smith to give us what he wants us to have for these last days and if there was ever a chapter of scripture that confirms uh, the way the Lord talks about the Joseph Smith translation in section 35. It has to be Matthew 24, uh, the, the, the words as they are in the Lord's own bosom, or yeah. the prophecy uh, as it was meant to be in the Lord's own bosom. And, and, and if you'll permit me, I, I do want to say one more thing about the importance of the Joseph Smith translation relative to our um, investigation or our study of the last days and and the second coming. And this comes from a statement by President Harold B. Lee that was given all the way back in 1972 uh, at a general priesthood meeting. And the reason I mention that is because this is the this is the prophet of the church speaking in a general priesthood meeting of the church and at that time there was uh, I, I do remember a little about this I, I wasn't quite indoctrinated into all the the furor that was being produced uh, about the second coming and you know it's going to happen a week from Thursday according to some and and all that sort of thing. But I do remember the power with which President Lee uh, delivered this message. So if I'm, if you'll permit me to quote from this, I think yes. it is worth our paying attention to yeah. and really important. So here, here's President Lee's general priesthood meeting comment, quote, are you priesthood bearers aware of the fact that we need no other publications to be forewarned if we were only conversant with what the scriptures have already spoken to us in plainness, and he's talking about the last days. And then this stunning comment, let me give you the sure word of prophecy on which you should rely for your guide. So here is the president of the church speaking in general priesthood meeting to all of the world, and he says, let me give you the sure word of prophecy. I I can't That's pretty think, solid. Oh, I, I was in that priesthood meeting. I, I was a young fellow, but I do remember the power that I felt when he said uh, th- those words. And this is what he said. Uh, the sure word of prophecy, uh, continuing the quote, read the 24th chapter of Matthew, particularly that inspired version as contained in the Pearl of Great Price, which we now know of as Joseph Smith Matthew. Then read the 45th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord, not man, has documented the signs of the times. 
Now turn to section 101 and section 133 of the Doctrine and Covenants and hear the step-by-step -step recounting of events leading up to the coming of the Savior. Finally, turn to the promises the Lord makes to those who keep command the commandments when these judgments descend upon the wicked as set forth in Doctrine and Covenants section 38. Brethren, these are some of the writings with which you should concern yourselves rather than commentaries that may come from those whose information may not be the most reliable and whose motives may be subject to question, unquote. Well, Carrie, I, I can't think of a greater endorsement than the one that President Lee gave in 1972. And so if... if uh, if we remember nothing else from our session together today, I hope it would be uh, the endorsement of President Lee about what we can study to come to know the sure word of prophecy regarding the doctrine of the last days and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So fair enough. Uh, I, I hope you'll I hope you'll keep that that part in in the discussion today. Um, and, and I've been talking a lot. I should pause and say, is there anything that you would add to, to our no, introduction? No, I've been adding as we go along. I, I, I will have lots more as we go, but, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. This is, uh, if you want to understand, well, let's put it this way. There are many things that I think it is not intended that we yet understand. Uh, the, about the second coming. The, the Lord is not spelling it out perfectly clearly uh, for reasons, but what he does want us to understand, we can understand pretty well from Joseph Smith, Matthew, uh, or Matthew, the inspired version uh, of Matthew 24. It is a key, uh, maybe the key reading for preparing for the last days. Yeah, and op certainly opening the door to our understanding of events. Yeah. regarding the last days and, and, and what uh, President Lee said about uh, section um, 45, section yeah. 101, section 133, about it uh, being a kind of a step-by-step -step primer yeah. for a primer to section 8 is also true of Joseph Smith Matthew. I mean, it's just because of his inspired revision, we get this, this wonderful chronological clarification. Yeah. So, um, We'll turn our attention now to the actual text. Um, Joseph Smith Matthew actually begins by presenting an expanded version of the King James Version, Matthew 23, verse 39. And Matthew 23, uh, verse 39, contains a messianic phrase, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord, uh, but also helps us to appreciate uh, the the understanding that Jesus's statements brought to these four apostles that are talking to him in the temple. But in order to get the full appreciation for the first few verses of Joseph and Matthew, we need to actually go back to Matthew 23 and look at verses 37 and 38, because it becomes clear that as Jesus is teaching in the temple, and at this point in his ministry, he's teaching daily in the temple. We have uh, several references to that. But 
just before he launches into his last day's discourse, uh, he's he's um, giving the some of the Pharisaic leaders a pretty good drubbing. He's uh, he's letting them know that uh, that they are uh, in error. It needs to be stronger than that. But this is the what this is what verses um, thirty six. Uh, 37, 38, um, quote, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. He's talking about his own generation, his own era. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And I think uh, pretty strong language there. Uh, and obviously, his apostolic followers are not the only ones that hear this. Uh, because uh, he will uh, actually leave the temple in, in a moment. And his four apostles and perhaps other of the disciples, we don't know, will follow him to the Mount of Olives, but the fact that he says in the temple, your house, this house, that supposedly yeah. the house of the Lord is left in you desolate, I think has a dual meaning. Number one, it's uh, it's desolate of uh, spiritual spirituality, but also the word desolate connotes that there will be a leveling of the temple. There will be a destruction. Yeah. Nothing's going to be left. And, and you so, really get a sense uh, of the Savior's pathos here. Like he loves Jerusalem and he in particular loves the temple. And yet I think he is seeing uh, or at least is aware of the destruction that's going to come in, you know, 35 years or so uh, when that the whole city is destroyed and the temple is leveled. And I think it pains him. Like it just is as, as much as he loves that place. It's so sorrowful for him to see what is coming. Yes. And in fact, I would uh, just refer our, our listening audience to uh, the way he describes the temple uh, throughout the New Testament. It's he seems to be progressively distancing himself from the temple because he starts out referring to the temple as my father's house. Why are you making my father's house a house of merchandise? And then later on, he refers to it as my house. And now, at the end of his mortal life, he says, your house is yeah. left unto you desolate. So there's progressive distancing the Godhead, <laughs> if you will, from, from what is supposed to be the holiest place on earth, run by the holiest people on earth. And these are the very people that have uh, talked about putting him to death in John chapter 11. So with that uh, in mind, then we take a look at verse 1 of Joseph Smith Matthew, which is the expanded version of Matthew 23, 39. And this is what he says, for I say unto you that ye shall not see me henceforth, or from now on, as it might be a better translation, uh, see me from now on, and know that I am he of whom it is written by the prophets, until ye shall say, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord, in the clouds of heaven, and all the holy angels with him. Then understood his disciples that he should come again on the earth. After that, he was glorified and crowned on the right hand of the Father. 
So that tells me that this is this is a new understanding for the apostles. They didn't really get it that he was coming again. And later on, when he uh, when he leads them uh, to near Bethany on the Mount of Olives, and he uh, and he is giving them some last minute instructions, they say to him, "Is Master, is this the is this the point in time when you'll restore again the kingdom to Israel?" And and so they're still, while they now understand that he's going to come again, they don't have complete understanding, and and probably didn't until. Uh, after the 40-day post-resurrection ministry that, that you will come to. So I Jesus think correct. They, they they knew he would ascend and come with more power, but I don't think they knew he was going to die. Yeah, exactly. So verse two, Jesus goes out from the temple. Uh, and uh, and if, as we mentioned, he's been teaching in the temple daily. And his disciples then come to him to hear him. It's it's almost like we hear them saying, uh, "You you can't you can't leave us hanging like this. You've got to you've got to tell us more." Uh, quote, Master, show us concerning the buildings of the temple, as thou hast said, they shall be thrown down and left unto you desolate. Unquote. So th that's that's not actually what the way Matthew. Uh, refers to his comment, but it is in Luke, Luke chapter 19, where he talks about the stones being thrown down, not one stone left standing upon another. And so Jesus well says, well, you see all these things. I think he, he doesn't mean just the physical surroundings, but I think he means, don't you see what's happening spiritually uh, under this uh, Jewish regime or the, or the Jewish leaders certainly not all the the jewish people are responsible for the the wickedness or the the depravity but there are key jewish leaders that are and i think he's saying uh, don't you see this don't don't you get this verily i say unto you there shall not be left here upon this temple one stone standing upon another and it shall not be thrown down and i was uh i uh, should have, and I intended to do this, but I just forgot, you know, with all of the comings and goings, that uh, you and I both have photographs of big piles of these Herodian ashlars standing on the west side of the temple, that retaining wall, part of which is called the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. wall and we see these huge piles of stones and we think, yes, we've seen the evidence of Jesus's prophecy here in verse three. And, and in fact, you can you can even see places where those stones from the temple crash through the the booths down below and landed yeah. in the, the place. So. so it's just it's just amazing. So Jesus then uh, is walking to the Mount of Olives, and we we know the significance of the Mount of Olives as we look back. Uh, on on the importance of it this is this is where he will ascend into heaven but it's also according to his own witness where he will return again uh, uh, as recorded in acts chapter one so this is an important site and as is his custom when he gets set he starts teaching his disciples privately and here's the outline that we pay attention to as we're reading through Matthew 24. 
when the, the disciples say, tell us when these things be, which thou hast said, um, concerning, number one, the destruction of the temple and the Jews, and number two, question number two, what is the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world or the destruction of the wicked, which is the end of the world? So those two questions, maybe even three questions, if you divide the second one in half, form the outline of Jesus's response to what's going to happen in, in the last days. And again, uh, try reading the try reading the version in the King James uh, edition and then read this and you clearly will see how much uh, more understandable, how much more chronological it is because of the prophet Joseph Smith, which I think is really cool. Yeah. <clears throat> so verses uh, five through 21 uh, answer the first question, which is tell us about the destruction of the temple uh, and, <clears throat> um, and the Jewish people or the Jewish nation. Yeah, so that's about meridian of time. That's this. This is wholly about the meridian of time, the days in which the apostles are living. Yeah. And then he, so he, he gets, uh, he gets more explicit here, and he starts out by telling them, "Don't be deceived." And here's here's how you you could be deceived if you allow yourself that. <clears throat> During this period of time, the Meridian Dispensation, there, there'll be people coming, claiming to be the Messiah or have Messianic authority. And they will deceive many. And, uh, and, they, and then he says very pointedly to the apostles, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Well, He's going to repeat that refrain at the Last Supper or after the Last Supper in John chapter 16, where he says, you know, you, you're going to be thrust out of the synagogues and they're going to take you and they're going to kill you. And when they do that, they're going to think they're doing God a service. So this is a, an important theme that he gives to, uh, to these apostolic leaders at this time. And then he says... Um, then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall, shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And so <clears throat> in my mind, at least a couple of points ought to be brought out. Number one, we do have some examples of these false Christs claiming messianic authority and false prophets um one of the most obvious ones uh, most obvious examples come later on in the book of acts from rabbi gamaliel or you pronounce if you prefer you can pronounce it gamaliel but rabbi gamaliel is the bright shining light in the sanhedrin at this point he's the teacher of paul He's the one about whom was said from the rabbis themselves when he passed away, the sun went and hid its face uh, because of the greatness of Rabbi. So Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Gamliel is the one who says, 
to the apostle uh, to the Sanhedrin, look, if these apostles uh, are not from God, then what they're promoting is going to fall by the wayside. But if they are, then there isn't going to be anything you do that could stop it. It's a great wisdom there. I love his uh, his uh, his true nature. Uh, <clears throat> so that's a point, that we, and and he talks about uh, Judas the Galilean, the founder of uh, what the certainly the uh, zealots, if not the Sicarii, you know, the dagger men, uh, the these um, assassins, yeah. these assassins who keep daggers. Uh, that's the that's the way they get their name. The the Sicaria, the Sicari are, you know, daggers, sicker. Um, and so that's an important point. We have examples of that. Uh, and, uh, and we have others even in the scriptures about uh, Christians themselves who try to, uh, to do harm to church members they don't particularly care for. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about uh, one uh, who did him harm because he uh, refused to help Paul defend himself, you know, against false accusations later on. So you got all these people that are lining up uh, against the, the apostles. But there's another important point, and I don't think that, that very many, if any, of our uh, LDS commentators mention this, and that is Jesus is not just describing the hatred that exists between the Jews and the Christians, or will come to exist between the Jews and the Christians, he is describing the basic environment or atmosphere that ultimately developed during this second temple period, during the period of the temple of Herod the Great, before it was destroyed in 70 AD. There's a couple of passages in Jewish literature itself that help us to see that this is really a time of hatred uh, throughout the Jewish kingdom. This is really a time where uh, Jews are seeking to do harm to their fellow Jews. Uh, we mentioned the zealots and particularly the offshoot of the zealots, the Sicarii, who go around and try to hurt their fellow Jews. But these two no. passages really tell us a lot about the environment in which the apostles performed their ministries. So this is, uh, both of these passages are from the Babel, uh, Babylonian Talmud. Uh, oh, excuse me, one's from the Mishnah and one's from the Babylonian Talmud. Yoma Folio 96, or 9b, quote, why was the first temple destroyed? Now, keep in mind, this is the rabbis who are saying this, okay? These are the great leaders in Judaism. Quote, why was the first temple destroyed? Because of three iniquitous things that existed there, idolatry, illicit relations, and bloodshed. But the second temple, meaning the temple that will be destroyed in 70 AD that Jesus will talk about momentarily, why was it destroyed? Because of baseless hatred that existed there. From uh, Tractate Kalah, the Babylonian town, quote, why was Jerusalem destroyed? Well, the first time was because of idol worship. The second time, 70 AD, because of unqualified hatred. Unquote. So, uh, Carrie, I, I I sound like I'm on the bandwagon here, but need to understand that even the Jewish leaders themselves recognized that this was a period of abject hatred, hatred 
among the Jews themselves. It wasn't just yeah. Jews against Christians. It was Jews against Jews. And so they believed that this hatred that existed in different quarters of society was the main reason that God sent the Romans down upon them in Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And this is what Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 7. Ye shall be hated of all nations. Verse 8. <clears throat> People will hate one another. Verse 10. Love of many will wax cold. But the message for the apostles in that day as well as our day, and this is the message of hope throughout this thing in verse 11. But he that remaineth steadfast and is not overcome, the same shall be saved. So we've been hearing that for about 150 years, right? <laughs> hey, stay true to your covenants and you'll be okay. Stay true to your covenants and you'll be saved. And so that's, that's I, I guess, the, the main message is that even though description of all these bad things happening, the message for the covenant keepers in our day is that it's the same as it was in ancient times. And maybe I'll just add uh, just, uh, something to it. Uh, if we were to read uh, Josephus, he makes it pretty clear that uh, before the Romans got in Jerusalem, conditions were terrible in Jerusalem because of different groups among the Jews yeah. who were, were doing terrible things to each other within Jerusalem. So, uh, But I, I think all of that we can understand a little bit more, and it should help us understand even our own day a little bit with that key phrase you read in verse 10. With the word because and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. I think that's teaching us that it's hard to be truly loving when you're iniquitous. And uh, and that's part of what their problem was. And in a day where President Nelson keeps warning us about contention, I think we have to take a long, hard look at that. We, we both want to focus on getting rid of contention, but we're going to have to do some repenting to help us with that, I think. Yeah, well, I, I, I love President Nelson's comments. Uh, we're sitting here listening to this message and you think, yeah, there's a, a lot. I can think of a lot of people out there that could really use this. Yeah, yeah. You know, and rather than focusing on ourselves. And it really does begin with me. And I think you're exactly right. And, and the evidence that you're exactly right is the way that Jesus emphasized love among his disciples unity among his disciples unity uh, among not just the apostles disciples but all of the disciples yeah. at love and and we get a double dose of that in moroni chapter 7 uh, with its discussion about charity which is the pure love of christ it, there there's no getting around it that jesus is very serious about this as he constantly inserts doctrinal um, exhortations about love. So one comes to appreciate that is the lack of love, the lack of any kind of human kindness in in the Jewish kingdom at this at this period of time is stunning, but it's also recognized by the rabbis who themselves were the leaders of the Jewish community. Then we have Jesus talking about uh, the abomination of desolation or the abomination that makes desolate, which can be nothing other, at least in my opinion, can be nothing other than the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. 
If you read um, the, the passages that mention that in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 and 11 and 12, uh, it's clear it's about uh, something uh, unholy, something detestable happening in the temple that stopped the rituals of the temple. And that's what is abominable. And that's what makes it desolate as well. So yeah. I, I think there's no doubt you're correct. It, it, it wasn't it wasn't the Romans that abominated the temple. It was the Jewish leaders themselves because the Romans destroyed the temple. It's the Jewish leaders that are making the temple an abomination because of their hatred and their iniquitous ways. And part of it, I'm going to sound like I'm trying to blame the Jewish leaders for everything, and I'm not. But part of the answer really is their hatred of Jesus, the hatred of the Messiah, their desire to do him in. And and then not only to, to kill Jesus, but to kill the one of the, the evidences of his messianic authority in the person of Lazarus. Let's get rid of him too. You know, John chapter 12. So and then anyway, we'll even find not that long after that his ardent followers like Stephen, they'll also yeah, exactly. Uh there is this passage that's a companion passage to verse 12 uh in uh, Luke 21. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then shall that desolation thereof, and then shall ye know that desolation thereof is nigh. And so let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. And that's uh, that's what Jesus says in verse 13 of this Matthew discourse. And uh, Eusebius, the church historian Eusebius, a second, third century historian uh, of the church and the goings on, uh, is our, I think, our only source. If not only, he's certainly the primary source that tells us that Pella was the selected site over in across Jordan in the mountains there. And, uh, and we uh, uh, love reading Eusebius. It just um, supplements my understanding of, of both the Old and the New Testament so much. Uh, and, and maybe to clarify that, it's the site that's selected for followers of Christ to go to. And right. to me, this is like the the great comfort we've got all these uh and some of them have to be hyperbole right exaggeration where yeah. he says don't even go back in to get your clothes and pray that you're not pregnant or nursing because you won't have enough time you won't be fast enough and so yeah. on um I, I think that's hyperbole but what he's trying to say is when when you have the forewarnings get out so what what we know from eusebius is that there were leaders of the church in jerusalem who warned those who believed in christ the, the, the disciples of christ there to leave and not everyone did but most left and went across the jordan river into this town called Pella, and they missed all of this destruction and all this suffering all these terrible things that happened in jerusalem those who didn't listen uh were got caught up in it were part of that suffering yeah if there's not a strong lesson for us today if we're because what we know and we know this from elsewhere in the pearl of great price from the visions of enoch that what happens in the meridian of time is in some fashion repeated in our day it's, it's just cyclical. So it's something, it's, if we had a pattern that was in Noah's day, that happens again in the meridian of time, that happens again in our day. This is a ringing endorsement for follow the prophet. It may not make sense to you what the prophet's saying. It, it may seem weird or whatever else. Uh, it's probably it did to some people when they said, get out and go over to Pella. And, but those who chose to ignore the prophet really regretted it. And those yeah. who followed their, their church leaders were so blessed and so grateful for it. 
there, there's the comforting lesson to me that while there are scary things we're going to read about in here, the prophets guide us in what to do about it. It's, I think you're exactly right. In fact, I have the words of Eusebius in front of me. Uh, and he says, the rest of the apostles who were harassed or harassed in, numer in innumerable ways with a view to destroy them and driven from the land of Judea had gone to preach the gospel to all nations. The whole body, however, of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by divine revelation given to men of approved piety there before the war, removed from the city and dwelt in a certain town beyond Jordan called Pella. So it's this, as you emphasized so well, it's the idea of listening to divine revelation given by scripture, given by uh, our, our prophetic leaders. Paying attention to personal revelation, I think, is, is really important. And President Nelson has uh, given some classic discourses on that. We won't be able to survive spiritually yeah. in, in yeah. our day without the increased capacity to receive uh, personal revelation, individual revelation. All right. So uh, the, the rest of uh, these verses down to 21, or, or at least the first sentence of 21, talking mm -hmm. about um, uh, not only these days, but a little bit. Uh, after these days in the year 70 AD, uh, some people uh, ask about verse 18, for then in those days shall there be great tribulation on the Jews, meaning uh, around the period of the destruction of the temple. Uh, great tribulation on the Jews and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, such as was not before sent upon Israel of God since the beginning of their kingdom until this time, no uh, nor ever shall be sent again upon Israel. And, uh, and so we're, we're kind of primed now to expect that there might be some other bad things in the offing after this, uh, occur after the occurrences in 70 AD or the first century. Uh, verse 21 and 22 is the turning point where we begin to discuss things uh, that move to the latter days. And uh, uh, we, we note that, um, that Jesus t tells us in verse 25 um, that if we come across those who pretend to be leaders or encounter uh, things that cause our testimony to shake a little bit, he says, uh, don't withdraw but be in the world and maintain your righteousness. Uh, and then verse uh, 26 is an important one where Jesus describes uh, the, the second coming and how all will view the second coming. Uh, and the, the light of the morning cometh out of the west and shineth even unto the, excuse me, the light of the morning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, so uh, yeah, everyone will, will understand when the glorious second coming bursts upon the world, because all shall see it together, according to section 101. So he's clearly now talking about our day. 
Verse 27 is an important verse because it gives this parable of the eagles to the carcass. And, uh, and one of the signs that were in this period of the last days before the second coming is the eagles gathering to the carcass. And uh, the prophet Joseph Smith helps us here again by telling us that uh, the carcass is the church. It's the, it's the bones of the church. It's the, it's the structure of the church. Uh, but the church is really scaffolding for the family unit. And so uh, we see that, that uh, one of the things that will be readily apparent is that the Lord's church will be upon the earth and there will be people walking to it, maybe not in huge numbers, but they certainly will uh, come to the to the church. Uh, later on, we see, I think, the Lord describing a kind of restoration uh, of, of the gospel, uh, not a kind of restoration, but restoration of the gospel. So verses 26 and 27 are important verses that talk about the, the last days. Other signs of the times, wars and rumors of wars. And and we all know, I think we've all heard that uh, the great uh, culminating battle is uh, called Armageddon. It's the one described in Revelation chapter 16. Also in Ezekiel uh, chapters 38 and 39, if memory serves, uh, where uh, this will be the granddaddy of all of these uh, many battles that we see among us we're, we're living in it and yep. and i uh in a past life i uh, i used to teach u.s military history at what was then rick's college now byu uh, idaho and the u.s army i guess thought that i wasn't doing a credible enough job so they sent me back to west point for two months uh, it was called the U.S. military history uh, fellowship, and so um, they they took us to all the Civil War battle sites and all the Revolutionary War battle sites, and tried to make a genuine military historian out of me. But the thing that they emphasized, uh, and these are obviously not members of the church; they have no interest in, at least, no apparent interest uh, in uh, Jesus's prophecies. Uh, at least from their professional perspective, is that there has not been a time since the period of the Civil War where there haven't been many, many battles raging on Earth at the same time. And back in the day when I was was back there, they were saying some 36 or 37 battles that were raging in the world at that time. Well, that was many years ago. Uh, there are, all we've got to do is Turn on the news, and there are the battles yeah. that are raging. Um, again, verse 30, uh, the same thing that existed in mm -hmm. the Meridian Dispensation will exist in our day. The love of men shall wax cold. The gospel will be, be, be treat, preached in, in all of the world. And again, verse 32, shall the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet be fulfilled. Um, people ask you, I'm sure people ask me, what's this second abomination of desolation? I'd be interested to hear your, your, uh, comment, your answer. <laughs> I, I always say, I don't know. I mean, what, what we know is that uh, something 
uh, interferes with uh, rituals or, or something, I was, there's a part of me that thinks, oh, maybe COVID was a fulfillment and we could be done with that. We closed the temples for a while. I don't know, but uh, there, there's something. Uh, I hope it's not as drastic as what we saw in Jerusalem in 70 AD, but uh, something happens that makes a d worship difficult for at least a number of people. Yeah, and and in fact, um, I thought about this verse in relation to descriptions of the final battle of Armageddon, and mm. uh, Ezekiel is pretty explicit, and yeah. and, and 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 Zechariah as well, describing uh, how half the population of the city of Jerusalem uh, is destroyed. But I love your answer. Uh, I'm glad to know that I'm in good company because I don't know either. Yeah. Uh, and but but what's interesting is uh, is uh, later on um, where uh, Jesus says in verse forty uh, of the that day and hour, speaking of his second coming, no one knoweth, not the angels of God in heaven, but my Father only. And um, I think that uh, at least some of us need to understand better that uh, Jesus is speaking in the present tense. He's speaking to his apostolic leaders. And at that time, what he says is absolutely true. Uh, but it certainly can't be true in our day because the Lord has said that he's not going to do anything but revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. And so we're back again to paying attention to the prophets, heeding the words of the prophets. I do think that um, that maybe we don't know the exact hour, but we certainly know the general time frame. Yeah, and the, and the prophets, they may not be able to tell us here, here is exactly when it's happening, but I think they will tell us what we need to be doing to be ready for when it does happen. Maybe I could read this from uh, uh, M. Russell Ballard, not president of the Quorum of the Twelve, when he said this at a, at a devotional at BYU. I, I love this little statement. He says, I am called as one of the apostles to be a special witness of Christ in these exciting trying times, and I do not know when he is going to come again. As far as I know, none of my brethren in the Council of the Twelve or even in the First Presidency knows. I love this next line. And I would humbly suggest you, my young brothers and sisters, that if we do not know, then nobody knows, no matter how compelling their arguments or how reasonable their calculations. I believe when the Lord says no man knows, it really means that no man knows. You should be extremely wary of anyone who claims to be an exception to divine decree. And I, I just love that. It's just almost a little tongue in cheek, like, uh, why do you think you know if we don't know? Right. Exactly. Um, but again, I, I think, I mean, I, there's been a real sense from President Monson and I think from President Nelson. It's time that it's, it's approaching. Let's hasten the work because yeah. we're, we're getting closer. Yeah. Um, and and each of them, whenever they say that, they tell us what we should be doing to be ready. Right. So and I, and I think for me, this also is saying um, this is not saying that nobody will know. Right. It's just saying that that statement applies to Jesus's day when he's talking to his apostolic leaders. So uh, we I think we do we do get a sense that uh, from prophetic warnings as well as scriptural descriptions that uh, we're, we're it's closer than it's ever been before and it will happen. And yeah. this, uh, <clears throat> this speaks to verse 51, <clears throat> uh, particularly members of the church who begin to say, as they did in Book of Mormon times, my Lord delayeth his coming. Yeah. 
I, I, I think we do, the whole point of this is to give us hope, to give us a wake up call, tell us you're gonna be okay if you're paying attention to what the savior has given us and you keep your eye on the prophet. Uh, yeah. There's safety in that. Um, yeah. and I, I think recently there's been a rash of, uh, especially it seems like during COVID, but still since then, rash of YouTube videos and all sorts of things with people having done all sorts of calculations to say this is when it's coming. And and I would say uh, there's nothing wrong with trying to study it out and trying to figure it out. I study it out. The more we study, the better. But if uh, if someone's like Elder Relic said, if someone's going to know, look to the, the corner of the 12 and the first presidency, that's that's where to keep your eye. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> one of the parables that Jesus gives is the parable of the fig tree to help us understand the Lord's timing concerning the second coming. And uh, having lived in Israel, as you have for many, many years on many occasions, um, he uses the parable uh, of, of the foliage uh, coming out on, on the branches of the fig tree. And uh, the fig tree is one of the latest of the trees to put forth its shoots or its leaves, but is also one of the first to bear fruit because the fruit pops out about the same time that the, that the leaves or the shoots do. And so I think what Jesus is saying there is <clears throat> uh, because the fig tree is is one of the later ones uh, to bear foliage, you know, just from experience that summer is right around the corner. It's not it's not, you know, a month away or three months away or whatever it is. It's right around the corner. And I think. Uh, we have plenty of witnesses to tell us that that the events uh, that culminate in the Savior's second coming are right around the corner. He talks about uh, the analogy in the days of uh, Noah. Uh, he says, "So shall that be uh, in the coming uh, in the days of the coming of the Son of Man." And certainly, we're all we all point to the great wickedness in Noah's period. But again, the Joseph Smith translation. Uh, is very pointed in terms of telling us why destruction came upon the people of Noah's era. And yes, wickedness is really, really bad, but the ultimate straw that breaks the camel's back, according to Moses chapter 8, is the rejection of Jesus Christ and his gospel, the rejection, rejection of the true Messiah and his gospel, refusing to be uh, to repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's pretty pointed in Moses chapter eight. And so that's what we can uh, be looking for. Um, I think um, I think uh, one last thing to say, because uh, I still wanna make a couple of sentences comment on, on Matthew 25, which is the continuation of this discourse. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that uh, that uh, verse 44 tells us that in the last days, right before the second coming, uh, two will be working in the field. One shall be taken and the other left. Two shall be grinding at the mill. One shall be taken and the other left. Um, and, I, and I know that the standard interpretation of these passages um, has to do with 
the coming of the Savior and the and coming in clouds of glory with the righteous uh, that have been resurrected, and that the righteous on the earth will be caught up to meet the, the Savior. Uh, and I and I think that that's true, <clears throat> but I also wonder if this doesn't have uh, at least some uh, reference to. Uh, the transfiguration of the earth at the second coming when the wicked will be taken, the wicked will be removed uh, from the earth uh, mm. because only those of a terrestrial nature or terrestrial character will be able to, to uh, enjoy living on the earth during the millennium. Just a thought. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm perfectly in harmony with this, with the, the standard quote unquote interpretation of those verses. I don't have any doubt about that, but I wonder if it's, it also is a dual uh, nature of prophecy as we talk about uh, verse 55 is um, the, the verse that uh, is not found in uh, in the King James version of the Olivet discourse. And it refers to uh, the prophecy of Moses and the great prophecy of Moses is found, I think, in every standard work has to do with the great prophet like unto Moses, who will be who is Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to me that uh, that uh, the Lord inspired Joseph to put this uh, in there. Uh, and it's also interesting to me to note that um, <clears throat> I don't think I've ever heard a sermon preached on. Deuteronomy 18 on this on the the prophet that will be raised up like unto Moses who is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ but the fact that it's found in every standard work the four standard works that we have leads me to believe that it's way more important than we have hmm. really considered uh, yeah I, I don't know so anyway the last thing to say is uh Chapter 25 of, uh, of Matthew is the continuation, and uh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, uh, the prophet Joseph Smith did not make uh, a huge number of corrections, uh, but he does uh, help us to understand that it's still a continuation of no. the Olivet Discourse because he says uh, in chapter 25 verse 1 and then at that day before the son of man comes the kingdom of god will be likened unto 10 virgins and so we have the parable of the 10 virgins which is about preparation for the second coming uh and we have um uh parable of the talents which is describing uh our behavior as we prepare for the second coming that the Lord expects us to be doing good things. And then uh, uh, continuation of encouragement for our behavior. Um, and a very famous passage about uh, uh, seeing those in need, being hungry and thirsty and being a stranger. And uh, when we do it to the least of those, we do it uh, unto the Savior. Uh, we are agents of the Savior as committed covenant keepers. Uh, and uh, and I'm grateful to have 
the fullness of the gospel to to know exactly how to come to Christ and then how to behave once I've come to Christ. And it seems to me that uh, our our understanding of that would be greatly impoverished without the work of the prophet Joseph Smith, yeah. who always points us back to the Savior and to the Savior's agents on earth who are living prophets. Um, I am grateful for the chance to study these things and hope to be able to pass on my witness of, of the truth to my children and my grandchildren, um, because it's, it's all about the Savior wanting us to be prepared. It's all about the Savior telling us that he loves us and know that he loves us because he's helping us to see what's, what's coming down the road. Beautiful, beautiful. And maybe I'll just give a little teaser for my audience here that uh, the, the next episode will be uh, with uh, John Anderson. And we're going to really dive into depth on that culminating parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats uh, that, that you were just speaking mm-hmm. of, which I think is so wonderful about, as you said, helping us to uh, know how we should behave. Uh, and and in some ways it is how the Savior wraps up his, his teachings about the science of the time. But I'd like to add my witness to yours, Andy, that uh, that the Savior does love us and he has told us what we need to do to prepare, whether uh, if we were to die tomorrow, I guess our second coming or our, our, our coming to the, the see the Savior again would be tomorrow, uh, or whether we live long enough to see him come in glory from the east. Uh, either way, he's told us how to prepare uh, both in in the scriptures and through our, our modern prophets. And I am so grateful for that. Wonderful. Well said. Thank you. Um, I did not mention, but you touched on it. I'm so glad that you did, is that uh, really when we talk about the second coming, we should be talking about several second comings. Yes. Uh, what we've been discussing today is the glorious second coming. Yeah. So great that when the Savior appears, uh, the physical elements, including the, the sun and the moon and the stars, will be uh, affected because of the power and the authority uh, that are vested in the person of Jesus Christ. But there are other second comings. And yes. maybe it's best phrase is a series of comings. Series of comings. Yeah. So. In fact, let's just spend a minute on that. Uh, if it's all right. I mean, so we know uh, we, we know there are prophecies about him coming as a thief in the night. Some people interpret that as him coming to Joseph Smith, but we know he comes to Joseph Smith. There are prophecies about him coming suddenly to his temple. And to some degree, that may be fulfilled in like coming to the Kirtland Temple, although some of those prophecies post-date the Kirtland Temple. So I think he's got yeah. more temple appearances. We know he's going to come to Adam on Diamond. Uh, but the when we say second coming, most of the time we refer to that that last one, the great glorious coming from the east. But there are other second comings, and and uh, that's worth understanding as well. And some of them may have already been accomplished. Yeah, and I and I think uh, that there are probably those uh, on the earth today that uh, have experienced um, a second coming of sorts and yeah. no. Uh, by a testimony even more sure than sight um, that he has come and he'll he'll come again. Uh, and I uh, I'm grateful to know that we have people that uh, that have had those experiences and we can lean on them. And uh, and it's a uh, it's part of the it's part of the gospel for all people. No, the Savior doesn't want anyone left out. Our Father in heaven doesn't want 
anyone left out. And I think that's another reason why he gives us uh, these witnesses and these warnings, again, so that we can understand that in a way, it's really up to us if we'll accept his gospel and try to to do what he wants us to do, we'll be okay. We'll be encircled in his arms of safety and protection and love. So I, I think that, uh, that that's uh, probably the best uh, way to conclude uh, is um, what you said. Amen. 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 Thank you, Andy. Thank, Thank you. you so much. We hope this is helpful for everyone and that... Uh, uh, if you're prepared, you shall not fear. I, I hope that this makes it so that we look forward to the second coming with joy and hope because of our faith in Christ. Uh, and uh, this hopefully has uh, helped you to have that experience. So uh, just let others know uh, about the hope they can have and the joy we can have as we look forward to our Savior's return. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. <laughs>